Bible with you, I invite you to open it to Acts chapter 3. The text is also printed for you, page 7 of the bulletin, as well as a lengthy outline that will help you follow me this morning. I'm sort of jumping into the middle of chapter 3, and uh, what happens before verse 11 is that a man who was lame from birth is miraculously healed in the temple vicinity, and this is the response to uh, all the praising and joy of the people seeing this miracle occur. Acts 3, verse 11, while he, the man that had been miraculously healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But the author of life, whom God raised, excuse me, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Happy New Year. New Year is a great time to reflect on God's blessings, both past with gratitude and future with prayerful anticipation. Don't you want God's blessing in 2019? You want God's blessing? 
God's favor, his mercy, his grace, his provision, things like sustenance and healing and health, God's encouragement for you, his sustenance, personal growth, effectiveness, fruitfulness, many such kindnesses of the Lord. And there's no doubt in our minds, God loves to bless his children with good things. And unlike those of us who have limited resources, God does not operate on a budget. <laughs> he is unsurpassed in his ability to abundantly bless you. He is irrepressibly kind and generous. There's a phrase in Psalm 81 that captures it for me where the psalmist says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So you've thought about your blessings for the coming year. There may be one you haven't considered. If it's true, as the theologians of old used to say, that an ounce of sin is far worse from you than 10 tons of suffering. Have you heard that? Let me say it again. An ounce of sin is far worse for you than 10 tons of suffering. If that is true, it must be a blessing to be turned from sin. In fact, you pray that earlier in the Lord's Prayer. Do not lead us into temptation. I would call that one of the most authentic, courageous, humble, honest, enlightened requests anyone could ever make of God. Lead me not into temptation. And this, beloved, is exactly what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to you Jews. The gospel first comes to the Jews to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, we might have expected Peter to say, God sent Jesus to bless you by filling you with the Spirit and giving you gifts and giving you health and giving you a certainty and a future and the promise of eternity, and they would all be God's blessings. But do you see the particular blessing that Peter identifies? He sent Jesus to you to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. That's probably not the first thing we would list among the blessings of God, but it is certainly one of the most important. He blessed you. How? Turning you from sin. Let me set the stage for you. This is the second of Peter's speeches, and as I said before I read the scripture, a man, 40 years old, is miraculously healed. How many of you have been around Wallace 40 years, if you don't mind identifying yourself as such. We have a few hands. That means at least every Sunday coming to church for 40 years, you would have seen this man lying there lame and his parents and then finally him asking for gifts to help him. He couldn't help himself for 40 years. And he's miraculously healed. And of course, the attention is drawn to Peter and John because they look like the guys that brought this to pass. And they are quick to say, no, 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 no. This isn't about us. This is about God glorifying his son. So the first question I want you to see on the outline is what principally happens in Peter's speeches. This is the second. There are a couple others later in Acts. What principally happens. Here's a simple outline of what happens in Peter's speeches. He reports on the events of Jesus' suffering and glory. Here's what happened. Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose from the dead. 
Incidentally, the book of Acts, resurrection, 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 they can't get away from it. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Jesus ascended to his Father, and he was given the Spirit, and the Spirit has been poured out. They report on the facts, and then they explain it to some degree. You could say here what's happening is that the Holy Spirit is making visible in word and deed the invisible reign of Jesus. Jesus is reigning. He is on his throne. What does it look like when he reigns? What does it look like when God comes to earth to save sinners? And so they give an explanation of that. They report, they explain, they show how this fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. Look at verse 18. What God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he is fulfilled. They're constantly rooting the, the events of Jesus in what God has promised, what God has promised. This is what the Old Testament saw coming. It's come to pass. The bud that so long existed in the Old Testament has flowered into the beauty of Jesus. And then they give implications. They report implications. This fulfills Scripture, and here are the implications. In other words, what has happened on earth in Jesus Christ is decidedly not F-Y-I. If I sent you a text, I get these from Frank McGovern. He, he knows some of the things I'm interested in. He said, I, yeah, F-Y-I, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a, a recording, here's a teaching, here's an article, F-Y-I. And Frank loves me, he knows me, I'll, I'll read those things. For, for your information, this is not F-Y-I. Boys and girls, you will read about lots of historical figures in your books at school. And you might say, well, that's very interesting. That is not what we say about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's infinitely more than interesting. He is the answer to how you escape death. This is not. FYI, this is coming to the railroad tracks. And it says, stop Look and listen. Those are the old cross books. Remember those? Stop, look, and listen. So notice how Peter calls you to respond. Verse 19. Repent, therefore. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, send him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, looking at those two verses, how would, it, how would you answer the question, what must your response be to Jesus? Look at the verbs. What verb do the two verses have in common? Turn. Now, in, in verse 19, repent and turn are the two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning. Both verses say turn. In other words, you see that sin is dangerous. Sin is odious to God. Sin is harmful to your soul and to the souls of others. When I was in second grade, I lived near the uh, northern Jersey shore, and one of my friend's father worked on a fishing boat. So I guess one afternoon, I went down to see the fishing boat. I will never forget walking up, and all of a sudden, I hit this invisible wall of a stench coming from the boat. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm, uh, I guess that's what happened when fish are dead or fish are gone. I hit this, and I wanted to throw up. I took my breath away. I wanted to turn back. That's the kind of reaction the Spirit of God wants to create in us 
vis-a-vis our sin. It's a stench. So how does God move us from self to the Savior, from lies to the truth, from self-righteousness to the gospel, from death to life, darkness to light, condemnation to salvation? How does he move us? He, he takes something exceedingly wonderful and powerful and otherworldly to turn us from sin because we feel so natural in sin. Sin comes so easily. It fits us like a glove. Our pride, our self-servingness, it fits us like a glove. So what does God do? He has to... Create in us a desire for something better. And what is that? Well, there's another verb that these two verses have in common, and that is the verb send. God sends you Jesus. Jesus is the only remedy for sin on earth. If there was another way, God would be pleased to make it known, beloved, Most people intuitively think, I'm going to assume that you're not a religious person, you're not sure how trustworthy, faithful, reliable the Bible is. You probably intuitively think the way to be right is more reform. Change your life. Isn't that sort of New Year's revolution? I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to improve my life. The simple message of the whole Bible is this. No one can make themselves right with God using their performance, their reputation, or their name. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh. We intuitively think if I do what's right, obey God, I can make make myself right with God. That is like trying to use a wet noodle to screw in a nail, to hammer in a nail. A wet noodle is useless. The law can't do that because sin ruins the law. Jesus came to do the impossible for human beings, beloved. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you see the three simple things that we do to be convinced we have life with God. We admit, I can't do this. My sin is too great. My sin is a substitute, a despicable substitute for the glory of God. And I'm convinced that Jesus himself is better than life. So that raises this question. What can Jesus do? What has Jesus done that God has sent him to us to turn us from our sin? Again, let me assume that you're a skeptic and you wonder why do these People at Wallace make so big a deal about Jesus. What's the big deal? And I want to imagine that we're going to answer that by going to a little scrapbook. We've got a scrapbook, and we're just going to look through a number of snapshots to answer the question from the Bible, largely from Acts, that answer the question, God turns you from your sin by sending you Jesus Because he is the only person that can do that. And he is all that you need for that. So here's the scrapbook. Every page starts with the letter P. Why do these pastors hopelessly do these kinds of things? Nonetheless, I developed one for 1 Thessalonians on my vacation on the work of the Holy Spirit where I have 16 C's. But you'll hear that in about a month. Here we go. God, God's, my quiet time, a sermon broke out. Come on. 
God sends you Jesus because Jesus is, number one, the promise of the Old Testament prophets. Acts 3.18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. The Old Testament is basically characterized by yearning, anticipation, an ache for how will God deal with the problem of human sin? God himself must come, and it's waiting, it's looking, it's waiting, it's looking, and, 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 the, and the Old Testament prophets find the fulfillment of them in Jesus. Secondly, that's why the apostles preached Jesus. Acts 2.23, this Jesus <laughs> delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The preaching of the apostles is Jesus. Third, the reason God sent you Jesus, because Jesus is the prophet par excellence. Acts 3.22, Moses said, this is Peter preaching, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 18. And basically, Deuteronomy is looking forward. Moses is anticipating a time when the prophetic office of Israel, very important office, the, off, the prophet has the word of God in his mouth. Every prophet that spoke ultimately pointed to the prophet par excellence, the word of God himself, the word of God made flesh, the one who is God Jesus is that prophet. It's interesting the way Hebrews 1 begins. In times past, God spoke to his people through prophets in various ways and many manners. But in these last days, he has spoken in Jesus. The last day speech of God is Jesus. The last thing, as it were, God has to say to the world is Jesus. This is what this is. Jesus, the prophet par excellence. Number three, the reason God sends us Jesus is he is payment for sin. Acts 3.19, repent therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Who else can take your sins? He did on the cross. What a stunning thing to think that when God opens your life, the record of your life, and everything you've done wrong is written in it. On that great day, it will be white, clear, blank. Your sins have been blotted out in Jesus on the cross. Jesus, number four, is your perfect righteousness. No one will stand before God unless they are as holy and righteous as God is. It's one thing to be forgiven of your sins. It's another not to have the absolute moral perfection that equates with the presence of God. Where do you get that? In Jesus as a gift. The moment you believe in him, he justifies you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God sends you Jesus, number five, because Jesus is passage back into paradise safely. See, if you read the Bible and you... And, and, uh, in the beginning of the Bible, you realize I was made for paradise. I was made for the presence of God. I was made for perfection. And Adam and Eve sinned and got kicked out. And the way back in is guarded by these swords. The point is, no one is coming back into paradise if they have sin on them. You will be destroyed before you get back into paradise. So the question, in a sense, for the rest of the Bible is, is there a man who can go under the sword in our stead, opening the way to paradise? And that's why Matthew records for us in Matthew 27, the moment Jesus was dying, he wrote, Behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the rock split. The way into the temple is the Holy of Holies. 
the place no one could go uh, unless they were cleansed of their sin. Jesus' body is that temple. His flesh was torn to make the way safe back into the presence of a holy God. The reason God sent you Jesus, number six, is that he is the provider of God's grace. Who would think that the way God blesses you is by cursing his son? And just as we are called to turn from sin, like that stench from the fishing boat, we are called to turn from sin, Jesus turned into our sin, as it were, was swallowed up by it to forever free us from its guilt and condemnation. Peter, uh, Tite, uh, Paul writes in Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared. It's epiphany. What's epiphany about? We're still in epiphany. See Frank McGovern, he's got the epiphany tie on this morning. We're in epiphany. Grace has appeared. Grace, grace, grace. It's in Jesus. The reason God sends you Jesus, number seven, is he is the proof of God's faithfulness. Paul preaching in Acts 13 of this man's offspring, God, David's, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. God keeps his promises. It was a long time coming. In fact, it was 400 years between the last prophet speaking and the coming of Jesus, the prophet par excellence, 400 years. Nonetheless, the point is, Jesus is here saying, I am proof God keeps his promises. I am proof God raises the dead. I am proof that paradise will be reopened. God keeps his promises. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 that all the promises of God, whatever was promised in the Old Testament, they all coalesce and find their fulfillment in Jesus. He is faithful, beloved. He keeps his promises. The reason God sends you Jesus, number eight, is because he is the provision of boundless mercy. If you've walked with the Lord any length of time, there begins to creep a suspicion in your soul. That sounds like this. Can he really keep forgiving me? I mean, right? It's like, okay, he forgives me. It's like there's this big cup. And the more you sin, it, it's getting lower and lower and lower and lower. Do you ever, you ever feel like this way? How can he, is there enough mercy to cover my sin today, tomorrow, next year, in the next decade, the next 50 years? Is there, the answer is yes. Jesus Christ has opened an exhaustible fountain of mercy, and the Lord's table is to function to encourage your heart in that fact. His mercy was purchased, endless inexhaustible mercy, by his death and his resurrection. John promises if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God sends you Jesus to turn you from your wickedness, number nine, as the paradigm for true humanity. One of the courses I enjoyed in college was abnormal psychology. What does that say about me? I don't know. But that begs what question? When you study abnormal psychology, what question does that beg? What is, it, what is normal? And philosophers and psychologists for centuries have wondered, what does it mean to be human? What would we really create it for? If you saw someone functioning the way humanity was really designed to function, what would that look like? The answer is what? Jesus. He's true humanity. So I have this quote. It doesn't exactly come out of the Hebrews 2, 17 quote, but he had to be like his brothers in all things, 
God, Jesus shares flesh and blood with us. He's tempted in all ways as we are. But when you want to know what it means to be a human being in all its glory, Jesus is the pure, true representation of it. Not just the perfect representation of God, which he is. The image and manifestation of the glory of God. He is that humanly as well. And most of you know being like Jesus comes at a cost, and that's why God sends you Jesus, because he is the pattern for suffering justly, for suffering unjustly, 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. How do we suffer the way God wants us to? Jesus is the pattern. Number 11, God sends you Jesus to turn you from your sins because Jesus is the presence of God. What's the operative word when we celebrate Christmas? Emmanuel. God is with us. God is always with us. And not just with us, in us. These verses from John, John 14, 7, Jesus says, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What? Yes, Thomas if you've seen, or is it Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want, to, you want to know what God is like? Jesus. He exegetes, he explains the Father. And not only that, he lives in us. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. <laughs> wow, stunning. Remember that little booklet? If you're my age, My Heart, Christ's Home. The little ivy, little, one of those little booklets. Wasn't that wonderful? My heart, Christ, so much talk about that together. What are the implications of that? What was the last words of Jesus to his disciples? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Number 12, God sends you Jesus because Jesus, flipping the page in the, uh, in the uh, scrapbook, he is the potentate of time, the ruler of time. Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Beloved, that means he will fulfill his purposes for your life. He's in charge of everything. He is sovereign. You can rest in him. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 57. I cry out to God most high who fulfills his purpose for me. It's the end of anxiety, really. It should be the end of fear. Should be. God sends us Jesus because Jesus is the possessor of all authority. Acts 3, 6, Peter said, when this man is healed, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. You know you have that same authority, beloved? I'm not saying you could do miracles like Peter could. If you feel so moved, then pray that way. But you have no less authority than Peter. Because his authority came by the power of the Holy Spirit through the exalted Christ, and that hasn't changed. It's the same Spirit at work in our lives. I wonder if there's a lot of gigabytes left unused on our computers, our spiritual computers, because we don't even take it up and use it. I, I wonder. God sends you Jesus because Jesus, number 15, is the priest constantly praying for you. Those of you familiar with the Gospel of John know that right before Jesus is arrested in John 17, he prays a long prayer for his disciples and you who would believe after him. And in a sense, he hasn't stopped praying 
Because Scripture promises, Hebrews 7.25, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he ever lives to make intercession for him. He's praying for you right now. He prayed for you through the night. He'll pray for you at work tomorrow. He'll pray for you in your darkest times. Never not praying for you. God sends you Jesus, number 16, because he is the protector from evil. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom um, of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What an amazing thing to no longer be in darkness under the tyranny of the hateful liar murderer of the devil. Jesus has freed you from that. He protects you from that ultimately. Jesus is sent by the Father because number 17, you have power through his spirit. This is Paul's... Peter's first speech in Acts, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out that that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You need more of the Spirit? Need the Spirit more active in your life? You want the Spirit helping you in things? Jesus will give him without measure. And finally, this has been tedious and a little pedantic, I hope not. Last page in the scrapbook, and look, there's like hundreds more. There's just, there's just 18 pages in the scrapbook. Why has God sent you, Jesus, to turn you from your sins? Jesus is the possessor of our lives, Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Oh, beloved, the cost of him possessing you, his Life, his death, his pain, his suffering, bearing the judgment of God. That was his pleasure, to call you his own, to work in your life, to make you something beautiful. No wonder Peter preaches in Acts, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. If this won't refresh you, there's no amount of Gatorade on the earth that will. Jesus is God's best. Jesus is God's only. Jesus is God. So here, just one little piece of application. I realize this isn't a sermon with a lot of application in it, but here's where it all coalesces. There are two principles that are very helpful in personal growth. One is you become what you look at. You become what you look at. What you set your eyes on invariably shapes who you are becoming. And secondly, you desire what you believe you need most. Okay, two principles. There's kind of two sides of the same coin. You become what you look at, and you end up desiring in life what you think you need most. There's the principle. Now put into that, he blesses you by turning you from your wickedness by sending you Jesus. If you look at Jesus, you will desire Jesus more and he will turn you from your wickedness. He sent you Jesus. John Newton has a wonderful song called um, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. The second verse is, Dear name, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. That's yours. He sent you Jesus to turn you from your sin. Let's pray. 
Father, you sent us Jesus. You sent us your best, your all, the all-sufficient, all-glorious, all-comprehensive, all-wonderful, all-supreme one. Oh, transform us by this gift. May we look at him and be changed, beholding him from one degree of glory to another. Thank you for my brothers and sisters and their interest in Jesus. Perfect your love in them. For your precious name's sake, Lord.